Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am down here deep in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Well, it may not be your nation's capital, but it's some nation's capital, and we are in it. And with me here, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, Susan Hennessy of uh, Brookings and Lawfare and CNN and other places, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and... We are here to pick up a discussion we had the other day um, about Vladimir Putin's victory, wherein he has helped enable the transformation of the United States, perhaps, into a kind of oligarchic system. Now, by the way, Wall Street has been collaborating on this approach for a long, long time, and others who are acting in sort of their self-interest and promoting inequality have been acting on this for a long, long time. But one of the things that strikes me in just reading the news of the past you know, week or so is that you have Mueller going after Trump as a kind of a crime family. And in the last episode, Ed Luce made reference to that. A crime family that's being manipulated by another crime family because the Russian government is essentially a crime family. Um, and in addition to that, you've got other analogous situations where there are these governments controlled by autocrats or oligarchs who kind of have you know, their you know, uh, hand in the till a little bit in their country. And, and this government of the United States kind of likes them whether it's the Saudis who have just gone through a purge in their government or the Turks um, uh, or the, you know, even, you know, the Philippines, you know, but Trump was, you know, brooding about that he was going to go to the Philippines and he was going to be more welcome there than Obama, in part because Obama noted that the president of the Philippines was a mass murderer. Um, uh, but, you know, a bunch of bad guys. The world seems to be drifting closer and closer, Rosa, to being controlled by a bunch of big crime families. Well, here's the good news, David. That's really been true for most of human history. What? So look on the bright side. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think there's some truth to that, right? That, that the, the, the sort of uh, Scandinavian good governance model – um, that we all, you know, for a while deluded ourselves into thinking that that everyone was kind of evolving towards. Um, uh, I think has always been the exception rather than norm, rather than the norm. Um, and I was going to say, you know, for 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 much of human history, how do governments turn into governments? Well, they, you know, historically they tend to start out as 
warlords and groups of bandits and you know the more successful thugs in the neighborhood and then and then certainly when you look at the history of of Europe for instance um they morph then into become the British royal family. Yes, precisely. That they they more they you know that you discover that if you want to be a you want to be also a investing <laughs> in the Bahamas and, and various yeah, yeah, places, right, by the way. Right, right, exactly. You well, know that you 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 have to um, you have to start uh, keeping track of the the masses and feeding them a little and educating them a little. Otherwise, you can't recruit them to be more part of to be a part of your you know little bandit army, and therefore you eventually take on some of the trappings of the modern state. And that over time, as you need to fight wars, at least certain kinds of wars, you have to make concessions to the to the masses as well in the form of the vote or other but, political but you, rights. You white collarize your inequality, and you white collarize your inequality, right? And and next thing you know, presto, you're you're no longer uh, you know. A, Organized crime enterprise. Uh, you're a government, right? And you're and the queen. You're the queen of England. Go, oh my God! And you've got a, <laughs> a little teacup. Tea Let's have tea. That's right. You're gonna let him talk and, this way. And, and, and now we're just degenerating on a global level, yeah, right back. <laughs> right, but she's like, oh, let's have tea. Meanwhile, every teacup there was paid for in the blood. Correct. You know that there was somebody who was slaughtered for those teacups. Correct. There was somebody who was slaughtered for the land, drawn and quartered. Take that. I'm, I'm not going to defend the monarchy, <laughs> or rather its forebears. I mean, this bunch are pretty innocuous. Uh, I would say – I mean I'd agree with what Rose has said. But how far back um, do we have to go in your family before there were people slaughtering people my family, who didn't believe in you – know. my, my family, um, part of it, a lot, most of it came from France. They were Huguenots. So they were being slaughtered. They were being slaughtered. They were, they, they yeah. were escaping slaughter. Slaughterees, Then they joined in all kinds of global imperial slaughters. But that's a, you know, that's a minor <laughs> part of the family. Um, that's basically all of human history that Rosa is <laughs> describing. Basically, there are a bunch of people who slaughter and take advantage. And if you're really lucky, you escape that group and become a slaughterer. <laughs> you switch the <laughs> – I think um, you know we could get President Pence very soon, and that's not a crime family. You know, I think the problem in America, I think, I think Trump is probably, in one respect, n- namely the character of his family and of his White House, sui generis. And I hope this is a one-off, but I don't think what Pence represents. You haven't read much about that. Whenever a radical cleric takes control of a government, there's not a <laughs> no, no, just a different variant <laughs> of the crime another, family. Another upbeat take on things. By the way, I don't think you've read much about the Harding administration, but keep going. Oh, uh, the teapot. Yes, no, no, I have. But it, uh, it's it, it, Trump himself is hard to sort of replicate. But let's say we did get let's say we did get Pence as president. He's going to be actually a far more efficient and useful vehicle for carrying out the Koch brother, Koch brothers' um, sort of vision for America and Robert Mercer's probably, um, which is you know a libertarian one where where there's, there's lower and lower taxes and um, less and less state assistance for those who aren't thriving in the modern economy. And I think that's been the real problem. It does create and reinforce. Um, an already sort of secular trend um, towards inequality that's caused by globalization and technology and so forth. When we ought to be being counter-cyclical, we're being pro-cyclical. And Pence would actually accelerate that. The great saving grace of Trump, um, in addition to the extraordinary sort of entertainment he provides, um, is, is that he's incompetent and that he's not necessarily going to execute this agenda. I think Pence would roll up his sleeves and he'd get this tax bill passed and he would forge compromises between different wings of the GOP. And that would actually that would actually deepen the very problem that led 
to a man like Trump being elected president. Well, but but I think so. so yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, but I, I think, you know, one of the things is they're crime families and then they're crime families, you know, and some crime families want to amass power. Um, and then there's, you know, the idiots who just want to have golden toilet seats, you know, and Donald Trump is, you know, the kind of crime family where it's like, well, I get to travel around the world in a big plane and, you know, people hold parades for me and I'm going to make a lot of money off of this and I'm going to capitalize and later on I'm going to be like, you know, Joe Lewis or Jack Dempsey or some, you know, you know, boxer from the 40s. I'm going to have a restaurant. I'm going to sign autographs. I'm going to be a big deal and it's going to be great, you know, and, and, and he doesn't really have a social agenda because what listeners don't know is we have golden microphones in here. Everything is gilded. Every yeah. in the in down here. David is just projecting his own vision of the future. Right, now. right. This is this is this is how the deep state works. You know, up there, there are all these sort of dull, gray-suited folks. Where the slaughter is down, down here, and down here in the basement, we are living in you know, you know, the riches, and we just you know, you know, handfuls of diamonds <laughs> that we have gotten. From, yeah. Right, Susan. That's not true. Um, <laughs> but that's that's but it would be nice. that's not true. But but you got to admit the Mueller approach to Trump is treating him like a crime family. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think he's operated like a crime family for most of his life, um, including the reliance on sort of familial ties over traditional political alliances, right? This sort of you only trust your your kids, you only trust your own family. I mean. Other than sort of uh, Middle Eastern dictatorship, unless you're like the Saudis, in which case you don't trust your own family, which we should also talk about. No, I think that's the thing we should talk yeah. about next. Is you know the it's such it's so interesting that the first trip of Trump <laughs> was off to see the Saudis, and among the few relationships that are really going great, it's off with the Saudi. And who did the Saudis? What did the Saudis do before they threw eleven princes into? House arrests and the Ritz Carlton and thirty odd ministers, you know, uh, in jail and 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 another prince just happened by accident to die in a helicopter crash, uh, even though he was a claimant to the you know throne. Um, who was there a week before? Jared. Ah, Jared. Little, little. And if you notice, Jared is in everything. He's like the the Where's Waldo <laughs> of the Trump. Like every He's bad the Zelig thing. of corruption. <laughs> He's just like he just happens to be in the Trump Tower meeting. He forgot to file his clis, you know, disclosure forms. He's in the Paradise oh. Papers. He's with the Saudis. It's like little Jared. That guy is busy. That guy is very busy. Although he's managed to accomplish nothing. Which well, is he, impressive. I mean, he did manage to get into a certain school in the United States despite having no qualifications to do so. No, he had substantial qualifications. His father made a gigantic donation and that Harvard Harvard has uh, historically always recognized the wealth of your parents and their giving propensities as a significant qualification for entry. I am completely shocked to learn that there are total idiots that have gone to Harvard. <laughs> exactly, isn't it? <laughs> Never. This is this is breaking news right here. Yeah, yeah no, it's 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 shocking. Harvard, Meanwhile, talk about crime families. I do remember. I I, I was I an undergraduate at Harvard many years ago, and I was quite shocked when I I was uh, involved in our public service organization, and one day the alumni office let us use their. 
uh, bank of phones for a, a phonathon to raise money. And I noticed they actually did have binders that were labeled things like widows and orphans <laughs> on their wall. Okay. So Harvard is shameless. Harvard is completely shameless and always has been. <laughs> That's how it got so rich. Yeah. Oh, that's really kind of fantastic. Well, I mean, so I mean, yeah. Mohammed bin Salman, a thirty-one-year-old, you know, who's Xi Jinpingizing or Putinizing the system in Saudi Arabia, which is very consensual amongst about three thousand princes, right? Yeah, I think it's, there's a very important distinction here, and we don't know. But I, I just mm -hmm. want to interrupt. Putin is the head of a crime family that's exploiting Russia without developing it. Xi Jinping is the head of a political party a very small coterie of whom um, are in control, which is actually enriching China and enhancing its power. So, you know, they, they, they are actually being rather effective in their governance. You could make the case, well, and I agree, and that's a very important distinction, but you could make the case or rather, I don't think we're yet in a position um, to dismiss the case that Mohammed bin Salman is actually a modernizer of Saudi Arabia. I mean, what he's done in terms of trying to reduce the power of the, the, the more, more conservative clerics, which is a bold step, it's particularly bold um, if he's doing it in tandem with cutting the number of princes who've got their, to put it crudely, snouts in the trough. You know, he could actually create a lot of populist um, support out of this because this is a family that's grown fat on the revenues from oil. It, the families, as, as their girth has widened individually, the size of the family just gets larger and larger and more and more top-heavy. And he's just slimming that right down. Only a few people are going to have access to these kinds of resources, let alone decision-making. He could, if he has the kind of political skill that I doubt he has, he could actually have a, a pretty good populist case for doing this because before before his, the Saturday night, the Long Knives or Massacre, um, that we've seen in Saudi Arabia. Um, if if you had told me, look, a lot of princes are going to be arrested, and you know the 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 budget for print, the princely budgets and the number of palaces are going to be cut, and you know the ulama are going to you know be clipped, have their wings clipped, women are going to be allowed to drive, all kinds of other social reforms are being promised, and on top of that, there's this vision 2030 model for converting Saudi Arabia into a post-oil economy, you'd have said, well, well, I quite like Saudi Arabia to go into that in that direction. I think that's a pretty good thing. Now, as it happens, this is like a megalomaniac 31-year-old who wants all the power to himself. But that's not inconsistent with, as you've pointed out with Xi Jinping's China, that is not inconsistent with pushing a country, you know, in the right direction, with enriching it, with um, developing it. So I'm just trying to make a, no, no, I think a, that's a devil's a, advocate that's a, case no, for him. The, frankly, um, I think there is a you know there is a kind of a notion that you know these despots or autocrats, um, you know some some of them out of goodwill, some of them out of a sense of survival, do enough to improve the country, to you know benefit enough people that they have a certain degree of stability while consolidating power. It's just none of this is democratic. You know, none of this, none, you know, none of, and, and, the, and the United States government doesn't seem to care anymore. I mean, right, we used to care about that kind of thing, democracy and values and, and so forth, and we seem to be sending a different Not message. particularly with the Saudis, though. I mean, America's record of holding Saudi Arabia to account has been pretty weak. 
to be fair. I, 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 I get that. Uh, but, but what I'm saying is more broadly. And more broadly, it's sure. certainly been inconsistent. Remember uh, the Obama administration's unwillingness to call the Egyptian coup a coup. Uh, you know that that on both sides of the political spectrum, we've seen plenty of uh, willingness to not call a spade a spade uh, if it was inconvenient to us to do so. Sure, although it does, you know, it, uh, the idea that this uh, administration is driven more by sort of the personal affections or potentially, you know, business interests of Jared Kushner, as opposed to any ideology, right wing or left wing. I or, think that's right. Or the pure, potentially craven <laughs> national security interests of the yeah. United States. That actually, what we're seeing is an override of what lots of people in the CIA would want to see right now. So I, I, you you can sort of put a, a look, we've turned our head on lots of things. Sure, but we've turned our head on lots of things, at least in theory, on behalf of sort of other U.S. interests. Here, it's not exactly clear what interests are at play, which is part of what makes um, assessing the activity of the Trump administration so complex. It just really isn't clear whether or not they're playing a, a game, however reckless or or imprudent, on the America First contingent behalf, on their familial financial interests, like sort of what the, what the motivation is here. And so, whenever you hear about things like Jared Kushner happened to have this secret trip last week, you know, was he informed? Did he give sort of the wink? Did he intend to? Of course, he did. Of course, he did. This Wait Saudi a if regime. You're the Saudis, are you going to tell Jared Kushner anything? No. Yes. Yes. Because I th- – uh, look, I believe that the Saudis would not have behaved in exactly the way they did without the permission or the wink and the nod. It's hard to imagine. It's 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 I, it's t- – first of all, coincidences like this don't happen. Secondly, the United States has a long history of doing this kind of thing, you know, back to Suharto in Indonesia and getting the wink and the nod to go in and, you know, kill 600,000 people or whatever in East Timor, 300,000 or whatever the number was. But, but the the – the point is these you know they they may not have said all the details but they may have said you know it's going to get a little ugly for a couple of weeks i hope you're cool with that right. so and there's also the personal spat between prince alawid um, bin talal and who was tweeting against trump yeah. that he's a disgrace and he should stand down and he's one of the ones arrested um by um by mohammed bin salman and that that could never, I think, be underestimated, the, the, the Trump personal yeah. grudge element. In, yeah, in or it's like, you know, you're rounding uh, some people up, by the way, if the, you know, right. if you big this guy up, we yeah. wouldn't complain. Uh, give him a little room at the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, give him, right. give him the smallest. Near the elevator. Give him the smallest floor. I think that's totally plausible. I just wonder... I just wonder whether another plausible theory is simply that the Saudis, like much of the rest of the world, has concluded that the United States isn't going to do anything much about anything much at the moment because we're so confused and distracted, and therefore you don't have to. Well, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I think we're giving the benefit of the doubt, Susan. You know, we are talking about you know confused and distracted. The reality is that the big difference between this administration and other administrations is this administration is a crime family. It is that corrupt. The president does have his his princeling son-in-law and his daughter in the White House doing his biddings while they are out there selling their wares. He is acting, you know, he goes on to Hawaii. And what wares they are. And yeah, what, yeah, and you know, but he is, you know, he goes to Hawaii and he like plumps for his own hotel, you know. I mean, he's doing all this kind of crazy stuff. It matters that the person in charge of the United States of America has a completely different set of values. And then on top of that, he's seemingly 
been, you know, nine people, or according to one article that I just saw, in his administration had ties or connections to the Russians along the way. He's he's seemingly, you know, completely accepting and maybe beholden to another such power. So, I mean, I'm just, you know, what's your take on that? You know, in terms of that, how much it matters that. You know the the character of the president matters in this mix as well. I don't. Know. I, I tend to fall along Rosa's explanation that this is all just the United States has left a vacuum. Other people can do whatever they want, and so I don't know. I, I think that there's not even uh, there's not even a desire to be carrying the United States's water to be checking in. I, like that's my. I think that it is overlaid with all kinds of sort of personal interests of uh, the Trump family. But I just – that seems like the more plausible explanation because I just don't think they sort of have their stuff together enough to be to be. But a lot stopped. of – you know, the, someone who was a former senior government official in the Obama administration suggested to me once – that there were intercepts that were out there that – of other governments saying, how do I manage Trump? Of other governments, you know, after the election saying, you know, you know, how do we, you know, and, you know, you know, he's manipulatable. Be, you know, we give him this. We do this deal. We do this kind of a thing. Um, now, that seems totally plausible mm-hmm. to me. Right. I mean. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I don't. I don't think anybody would be particularly shy about it either. Um, no, some of these countries they think that's the way business is done. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big deal. Look, we've got about ten, twelve, fifteen minutes left. I want to turn the subject to something completely different, um, but it also has to do with the abuse of power, and I think that this may be a bit off the beaten track for some people, but. Um, you know, the, the, no, it, 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 I, I want to sort of pick up, I, you know, Susan Glasser, who was on one of our recent episodes, just did an episode of her podcast and did some work with some women in national security. And they were talking about sexual harassment in national security. And, and, and there was plenty of it. In fact, I saw a study. This was not part of what they had done. But there was a study done, I think, a year ago of – some of the few women who'd made their way into legislatures around the world, and only about 17 percent of the population of legislatures around the women are, world are women. And of that, 85 percent of the women in legislatures had been sexually harassed while working in the legislatures. And you know, I think we find this in every field. And the reason we do is related to this prior conversation, which is men control power. Men have set up the system. Men have set up escape systems so that they, you know, can manage this kind of a thing. Uh, and you know, it's kind of true in a male-dominated world like foreign policy as it is in Hollywood. And I just, I mean, Rosa, we were talking about it before, and I just, I just thought it would be worth talking about a little bit. Um, well, I, th- I think there are a couple of different issues. Um, one is. A broader one is not one is sexual harassment and sexual assault, which which certainly exists more than it should in the military, the national security world, foreign policy world, and um, Susan and I are, are both part of a, a loose network of women uh, who in, women in in the in those worlds who tend to go out every now and then and 
drink and <laughs> compare notes. And and there are some pretty appalling stories that, that some of our, our colleagues have about uh, uh, real harassment and, and assault. Um, I think there's a broader issue, the second issue, though, and, and what's, I think, for many women just as difficult to figure out how to deal with is stuff that doesn't rise to the level of I'm going to sue you, you know, uh, I have a hostile, uh, you know, hostile environment claim against you or, or, or even an assault claim, but, but just to the level of the, the, the myriad subtle ways, some of them structural, some of them having to do with sort of unconscious forms of bias, uh, that these worlds are still absolutely uh, stacked against women in all kinds of ways. And and I think we all have a zillion stories of belittling comments um, or simply failing to notice the ways in which workplaces are structured and the ways in which that, that disproportionately pushes women out and so on. And I do want to say, by the way um, – David, I'm going to say something nice to you because we're all mean to you on our podcast. I was um, about to say, we're f- but nice. but I'm going to be Thank nice you, to David. Susan. David, um, you will remember that uh, uh, several years back when you and I were both at Foreign Policy, and and you were you were in charge, and I was one of the columnists, and I pointed out at at one stage. I think it was because uh, Foreign Policy decided to start running these little pictures of, of its columnists and it hadn't done that previously. It was just a list of names, but you started running the pictures, which made it crushingly obvious that I was the only woman uh, in the entire group. There were about 20 or so columnists and only one woman. That was me. And I and I said, hey, guys, this this is not cool. Why, why are there no women? And most of the other editors at Foreign Policy, including several women, made excuses and sort of said, well, you know, it's very, very difficult. Of course, we're always looking for talent. so hard to identify, blah, blah, blah. Women don't not interested, blah, blah, blah. Women don't have expertise, blah, blah, blah. And you said, uh, uh-uh, not good enough. Uh, we need to have half women in six months. Make it happen. And it did happen. And now foreign policy has a stable of fantastic women writing columns. Um, so, you I know. I think stable is the nicest term. Stable. The best harem of women no, no. in the whole foreign policy Man, you're world. You're in the wrong direction. <laughs> but, no, but, but I mean, I mean, that is actually rare, right? But, but, you, but it actually matters. You know, I mean, it my, matters my, and it's rare because the, the typical response that you get from people in power is some variant of the, oh, but it's just so difficult. Well, we sure are trying. Too bad we can't find more women. And you're, you were one of the few men who sort of said, uh-uh, not acceptable. Fix it. And it got fixed. Well, you know, first of all, one of the reasons I did it was not, you know, because I'm a nice guy. We were supposed to be reflecting the views of the world and half of the people in the world are women. And we were getting a very biased view of the world. And that's where the problem starts. So we said half the editors, half the writers, half the um, uh, columnists. That was the goal. Um and we also, by the way, said we will never have a panel at an event that doesn't have women on it. And I said four years ago or something like this, I will never be on a panel that doesn't have women on it. And it wasn't a noble stand. It was just I discovered that unless you did that, it did not change. Yeah. Everybody would make excuses. Men and women alike would just simply make excuses because they go to the same Rolodex. They go back yeah. in the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I so it's been sort of a, a weird, slow-moving event, kind of starting with the Harvey Weinstein, you know, revelations, and then uh, moving into individuals in the media, and, and now I think sort of the the early conversations about national security or or foreign policy in this world are starting to happen. Um, 
I don't uh, – I have sort of mixed feelings on the way the conversation is occurring now. Um, I uh, I think there is um, benefit in the sort of like the Me Too hashtags and having people share their experiences. I, uh, am a, I'm a firm proponent in that people should share their experiences in the manner in which they want to for their own purposes. And that there's – sometimes I think like it's a, there's a little bit of like a demand of sort of, you know, come and add your voice <laughs> and add your experience. Like, well, that doesn't do anything for me and that's sort of not – right? So I, I think we're <clears> – <throat> so I sort of am grappling with, with watching other people and, and seeing other people sort of process this on their own time. Setting aside kind of the harassment issues, there are big structural sexism issues, um, particularly national security. Mm-hmm. This is a world in which it's really hard to have children, have a personal life. Um, it's a world that's shrouded in a lot of secrecy. There are moments of, of really extreme vulnerability um, that often and, and historically have been moments of sort of abuse, right? Think polygraphs and background investigations and sort of um, – Additional protections have had to be put in place. Um, but I think that one thing that sort of women who are at, at senior levels of national security or mid-careers who um, take the time to reach out to young women who are rising up in this field mm-hmm. um, are not heartened or encouraged by what they're hearing, which is that it's not this sort of trend towards things getting better and, oh, you put up with some, you know, this or that because that was just the way the world was. It, it actually – it's not getting better and in some ways it's sort of getting worse um, or at least you know, my perception from the, from the people I've spoken to, it, it occasionally seems like it's getting worse. My hope is that if you uh, take a step back and solve some of those larger structural issues that make it really, really hard for women to work and thrive and succeed, some of those sort of secondary harassment mm-hmm. issues um, will will resolve themselves or even resolve themselves as sort of a, a weird passive way to put it. Um, so I'm I'm heartened to see the conversation happening. Um, I'm still trying to see the connection between, okay, people are going to start talking about this and having, you know, and, and sort of sharing their experiences. What's the connection between that and like what actually people are supposed to be doing? Well, it seems it? to me, Ed, you know, there is no way to solve this problem without changing power structures unless half the board members and, you know, and, you know, I'm talking about on an average basis, but unless. Board representation, management representation, uh, command structure representation, um, political representation, reflect society, then those who have disproportionate power will write the rules to benefit themselves. And so unless this discussion leads towards a change in those control structures – those power structures, then it's going to be a pointless discussion because the people in charge will find new ways to um, express themselves as predators or, or abusers. Yeah, I mean, a very good example that I, that I know quite well is the um, reservations, as they call them in India, for women at the local level, the panchayat, raj, people who run the villages, basic unit Indian society. And that one third of all village heads were reserved for women, and there were probably only two percent at that point were, and that has and the assumption was, oh well, they'll they'll, they'll have a man behind them controlling them, but actually in practice, it's caused a sort of grassroots revolution in a lot of India, um, because they've taken control of budgets, they've penalised men who drink it away and beat you know people up when they're drunk. I mean, it's caused quite profound changes. Um, 
you know, on the other hand, I know I know plenty of, of, of women friends who are feminists who see an invidious quality to having actual numerical quotas, and I don't feel you know particularly qualified to uh, argue with the passion that you know I hear on both sides of this. But I know that you know it's not an unmixed blessing saying fifty percent of all uh, members of the legislature or fifty percent of the board should be female. Um, that there are, the, there might be you know backlashes that that creates that don't serve the advancement of women. And I've also been taught um, and quite rightly on Twitter um, after the Harvey Weinstein. Um, at, the horrors of Harvey Weinstein sort of coming out, never to say as the father of a daughter. <laughs> um, but and and you're a father of daughters, so um, I know you never would say that. Um, but if people could talk more about being the father or mother or teacher of sons and that grassroots level and and how boys are raised, um, you know, I think that would be a just as important part of the conversation as, as quotas at, at high levels of society. So actually, I, I found this sort of fascinating. I've also noticed this backlash against saying that you're the father of daughters. Yeah, and I, like, how I think this? I missed what's wrong So this with is that. like, because all these politicians, people in Hollywood coming out and saying, right. you know, as a father of daughters, I'm, I'm horrified by this. And people sort of ridiculing that as, you know, you didn't think there were women were human right, beings right, before. Right, 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 right. Matt Damon, I think, was particularly exactly. hard to that. Um, yeah. And that it was sort of a shield to, to cover right. either their complaint sincere about If I were the father of daughters, I would be totally okay with this sexist. <laughs> for, for me, I think it's sort of, you know, look, like, um, I, I think it's an ordinary impulse to understand the moral universe through your children that actually is a transformative event for lots of people, not in, like, the recognition of other people as human beings, but the ability to empathize in a totally different way with other people in general. And so I've been surprised a little bit by how sort of, you know, never again can we say the fathers of daughters. I, I agree with the sentiment about sort of um, uh, directing uh, similar attention on on raising boys sort of to be differently. But that's one element of sort of what's happening that I, I, I just don't quite understand it. Well, let me, let me ask, you know, again, we've got only four or five minutes, but l- let me ask Rosa and Susan each a question because we deal with foreign policy and national security. And there there have been some kind of interesting developments over the course of the past 25 years. One of the interesting developments is foreign policy has become more of a woman's field, right? You can have women secretaries of state. There are a lot of women foreign ministers right. around national the world. National security is still for the boys. But national security is very serious. You can't and look down the scope of a rifle. Right, right. I mean, you a need, pointy and, end of the spear. And you, need, and you need to be serious. And so we haven't had um, – a lot of women's leadership in the intelligence community, and I want to get to you on that. But in the military community, there there has been some very, very small shifts. But still, sexual harassment in the military, terribly serious problem, um, to, to which there are many people who are like, well, you shouldn't have women in the military then. So, so I'm just wondering, what do you think the state of play is right now? Yeah. First Rosa, then Susan. So military, then the intelligence. On community. the on the military sexual harassment, I, I I actually think it's it's somewhat overstated, um, in the sense that the military sexual harassment problem, if you control for you know similar age demographics and so on, is not particularly worse than, for instance, sexual harassment assault problem in American college campuses. So so I, that I think is a little bit of a red herring. Um, you know, in that sense, I think the military very much is a mirror of the broader society and its problems rather than some unique culture. Um, I do think, I mean, I would, I would echo what Susan said about or, or reinforce what she said about um, 
seemingly neutral structures that that in fact systematically operate to keep women out or to push women out or to keep them from rising. Um, and I think we absolutely see that in the military as well as until quite recently – uh, lawful over discrimination of a sort that you didn't have in any other field, you know, that things like the combat exclusion rule, which which in and of itself, you know, was incredibly devastating to women's ability to rise within the ranks because the military uh, prizes the combat-related positions in, in terms of who becomes the top leaders in the services. And if you were legislatively or by regulation prohibited from being in those positions – that was just going to mean there weren't going to be a lot of women who rose to the top. Um, that has now been changed. But I think what we're now seeing the struggle over is something that is is harder to combat because it's these seemingly neutral requirements, which in fact are not neutral at all. And you see it in the debate about uh, you know the relatively small number of women who finished ranger school or the uh, Marine Corps' uh, basic uh, infantry officers course where the claim is like, well, you know, as long as the women can do it, We'll let them in. It's just that not very many can do it, which begs the prior question, which I think – and we see similar, things similar to this in every field of why is that the it that you have to be able to do? Well, it turns out that that's the it that men are pretty good at and that's an it that women are not as good at. What's much less clear whether that particular set of tasks has any remote correlation with being a good soldier, being an effective soldier, effectively advancing our national security interests, which the answer I think increasingly or, or, a or, neutral answer would be no. Or Right. Or being a 21st century Or being a 21st soldier. century soldier in particular when it's no longer uh, nearly as much about sheer brawn. Um, so we have these standards that are purportedly neutral – but that in fact systematically favor men and then people go, oh, well, it's not sexist. It's just neutral standards. You, you get even more buried versions of things like this in things like the structure of workplaces where the workplace culture is because we are dealing with such world-breaking, you know, world-shatteringly important issues. You have to be available all the time, which unfortunately disqualifies anybody with any family responsibilities. But this is not sexist. And, you know, I look at things like that and, and you know, I've written a little bit about this in the past and say – that's not a product of a workplace that deals with world-shatteringly important issues. That's a product of a poorly managed workplace in which managers choose to create an environment of constant crisis. The fact that there are crises 24-7 does not mean people need to work 24-7. And there are certainly plenty of fields, including airline pilots, long-distance truckers, in which we very rightly say, you know, an exhausted person can't function. They're not safe. It's not safe for them to be a pilot or a truck driver if they're sleep-deprived. Yet in in the national security and military domains, we continue to operate as if you may, you know it, it's what makes you a cool seasoned person that you're sleep deprived and therefore your judgment is as bad as if you were drunk, and 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 the fact that this clearly has a differential impact on women who still tend to be the the caregivers in their families uh, becomes just oh well that's just an accidental byproduct of this as opposed to people being able to look at this and saying no this is a central part of a workplace that is structured in a way that reliably and predictably and reliably pushes women out and we could change that with no ill effects on achieving our broader goals we just don't feel like it it seems by the way perversely I mean, it's all perverse, but in the intelligence community, um, where a much higher percentage of people don't actually have the, you know, the the physical, you know, issues that you know the military invokes in these kind of things, 
that the progress of women has actually seemed to be less at the leadership level. Yeah, so I think um, there's there's sort of two issues that the intelligence community is struggling with. One, um, they have a huge brain drain and talent issues in general, right? They're trying to recruit, especially in places like NSA, CIA, out of STEM fields. They aren't able to match salaries. Right. Americans they don't know math, so that's, right. that's hard for us. It's kind of a problem when you know, <laughs> cryptography is your fundamental field. Um, and so, look, you're you're not going to – that's kind of – that's one of the most central issues the intelligence community is facing right now. Um, you're not going to solve that problem problem excluding half the population at the outset. And so they're going to have to care about diversity issues moving forward because they just will not have the talent if they don't tap into these pools. When we think about the elite leadership, right, that sort of that senior leadership level, which is really where we start to see dramatic disparities. You know, I mean, you, you see sort of women at the, you know, in the general workforce and as you get higher and higher, there are fewer and fewer. And then really once you get up to that senior leadership level, there really are remarkably few. And I think the thing that will ultimately change that is for the men that currently hold those seats to think differently about the people who are going to come after them. Um, and so uh, Rick Leggett, who was the deputy director of NSA while I was there, um, wrote a long op-ed, I think in Time magazine, whenever he stepped down, just kind of reflecting on um, his time at the agency and sort of how uh, uh, fulfilling and, and, uh, and, and validating that part of his life had been in this part of the service to the country. <clears throat> And he kept talking about the person who was going to come after him. And he kept intentionally saying, I can't wait to see what she does next. I mean, it was just has always been really, really conscious of um, of visualizing for himself and for others and for the workplace this notion that the person who followed him would be a woman. Now, it turns out it's actually not a woman who was selected as deputy director, um, you know, this time. Uh, but I think that, that those are, if you want that kind of that elite level change, um, what, you, what you are going to need is for those men to start thinking differently about who they are bringing up as their possible successors, you know, who they are um, building networks and investing support in. Um, that's, that's, I think, going to be a, a critical thing. Um, unfortunately, it comes down to kind of the individual level of people. You know, we all know men uh, who are really invested in that and care about it and take it seriously. And we know, um, you know, I, I don't know many men that I think are sort of malicious about it and actively want to exclude women. I'm sure they exist, but are just kind of not, don't concern themselves with it or just don't view it as sort of their individual problem. I think until those people take ownership of this as part of their legacy, as part of the futures of their agencies, then we're, we're still going to have this gap. And one, one last sort of stray thought coming out of it. I, I, I think part of the reason, you know, Susan mentioned some discomfort with the, the Me Too hashtag. And, and I, I think in part that's because it sometimes feels like there's a little bit of tension in between these two goals. And, and it's, it's something that um, this broader group of, of women uh, in national security has been sort of talking about is that the more men get scared that they live in a world in which they're going to, in a, in a moment of where they do something stupid or insensitive or they're drunk or something, um, that that will turn into somebody's Me Too story later, the less willing they are to take risks to mentor women, to promote women and so forth. And I think there's a real fear that men start adopting and some of them already do. The Mike, the, the, Pence, the Mike rule. Pence rule of, you know, I don't have lunch alone or dinner alone or sit in a room with the door closed with a woman because 
bad things might happen. I might be tempted or she might misconstrue something or something like that. That, of course, is, is also devastating for women because so many of the paths to advancement in every kind of institution have to do with the close personal relationships and informal mentoring that goes on. And when men won't won't form those kinds of relationships with women for fear that they all become sexualized, I think that women really lose out there too. So I, so I do think that there, there's a little bit of an unease of feeling like, yeah, we don't want to be sexually harassed. Um, but that's not the same. You know, if, if men take that as, oh, I better, I better never be alone with a woman, that's going to be devastating to women too. Right. And that's, you know, clearly the wrong message. And, you know, I mean – the, the the reality is the systematic repression of women is the single greatest crime that has taken place in the history of civilization. It has involved millions of girl babies over time dying. It has involved m- literally the majority population of the planet Earth not having had equivalent rights to the male populace. Uh, and it remains the case to this day everywhere, not just a little but egregiously. I mean you know, people will say, well, look, Norway, the prime minister, the foreign minister and the finance minister are all women and that's great. But even in Norway, there are disproportionate issues and we live in a moment right now where the president of the United States has appointed something like 60 judges of which two are women, 60 of which two are women, you know, are federal judges. To federal judgeships. Not to mention that he himself stands accused of, that, uh, he, of, of including sexual including harassment and assault, rape, uh, and uh, and 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 so forth. And you know that this administration has been, you know, hugely insensitive to these issues. And we are just at this moment where, you know, there is this awakening to the Harvey Weinstein thing, which there ought to be, or just as there ought to be to the Kevin Spacey kind of thing, and there ought to be to. Um, you know, each and every one of the cases that exists here. But the issue is power. It's, it, it, it's about abuse of power. And before you can solve the issue of abuse, you have to resolve the issue of power. And right now, we're not doing it. And, um, you know, hopefully we will come back to this on a regular basis. We're out of time here. Um, but I appreciate the perspective. Next week, that, we will yeah. resolve the issue of power. Well, I hope people who listen to Deep State Radio notice that or on as many episodes as possible, if we, you know, it's either 50-50 or more in favor of women, that it's essential to the show that we have women voices. And by the way, this is not to satisfy a quota. The reason this is the case is there are a lot of really, really smart women who are providing vitally important perspectives and every one of them is here on the merits. Um, and women are smarter than men. Yeah, I, pretty much. Hey, look, you know, I just saw a statistic which is kind of interesting. <laughs> but sugar of, buns, thanks for the compliment. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for calling me sugar buns. Um, but, but it's so sweet was, to be on the show. That with was you, that was that was that was me, right? But but you know, I did I did notice, for example, in 150 instances or 148 instances of mass shootings in the United States, in which four or more people were killed, two have been women. Um, two of the shooters. Two of the shooters. Yeah. In other words, there are there are real differences, and and many of them cut to the benefit of women. Um, and uh, you know, I I I I 
I, I, I see that as a as a special advantage that we have here. Anyway. <laughs> that we're somewhat less likely to shoot you than than your male guests. Yeah, and I have to <laughs> I have to call my lawyer now that you call me sugar buns. <laughs> um, I'll represent you on that. <laughs> thank, <too>. you. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, no, yes. the, Do you wanna... well, well, I, I, maybe we will take this up in another podcast because because I think then the I don't want to I don't want to see us decide that women are just so darn nice because we're not, David. We're really, really not. Rosa, you don't have to tell me that. Yeah, thank you. I know. I hope you're I hope you persuaded you that I mean, we're you not guys that should nice. hear the things Rosa says when I your backs. <laughs> yeah. And, right, yes. I've I've heard them, some of them. Um anyway, thank you all for joining us. We look forward to having you back on another episode of Deep State Radio. Um uh bring your friends to the next one and uh, we will uh, talk to you next week about something horrifying. I'm sure. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>